0: just the white final girl riding off into the sunset covered in blood is a genre booming with marginalized, oppressed, and colonized writers as a space to directly confront the violences they have suffered. We talk all that and more with Matsi right here on Radio Drama Revival. And welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. Today, you'll hear our interview with Motsi Dapul, creator of High Nai. Dapul works in 2D animation and produces queer Filipino comics. She's been involved in fiction across different mediums for many years and has spent all that time honing her skills across science fiction, fantasy, horror, and romance, usually all of them at once. Working in these fields means she's able to bring stories that reflect her own history, experiences, and culture to global audiences. Please note that we will discuss and mention instances of physical abuse. The Philippines May 2022 elections and the history of the Marcos family. Take care of yourselves. Uh, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, Matsi. We're really excited to have you here and to talk about Hainai and talk about horror and immigrant narratives and all this stuff.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Having me. Sorry. <laughs> us, uh, the team, but me. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, don't worry. We'll talk about, uh, talk about your co-collaborator, uh, very shortly, actually. Nice. Um, uh, so, but first of all, let's let's talk about you. Um, you've also worked in animation and comics for a long time. Mm-hmm. A, a really rich storytelling background. Um, tell us a little about how you got into animation and in particular how your work in these visual mediums has influenced your work in an audio medium. Oh,
1: absolutely. So, um, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I loved, you know, drawing and stuff. So I got into animation about the time I was going to college. Um, I enjoyed, like, doing comics and, like, doing, you know, drawing stuff, um, which is basically just what happens when you're, like, a kid and likes anime and likes, like, (laughs) um, American TV shows and everything. So... (laughs) That's basically, Mm, yes, yes, where all the interest (laughs) went. That's all, all, you know, you got to want to make your own manga. You want to make your own comics, that kind of thing. And yeah, like, and then when I found out from a friend of mine that there was an animation program in like one of the top schools, I was like, okay, I'm going to get into that one. And of course, as with like many parents, they're like, hmm, animation, arts, hmm. Arts (laughs) Arts <laughs> What do you mean arts But What do you mean arts um, And they had like this Not really an ultimatum but they were like Oh you can only do this if you can prove that this is gonna be Like worth it and I got a full scholarship So are like okay fine <laughs> like wow damn so that's so yeah that's, how, that'll do it yeah that'll do it exactly <laughs> and yeah um my dad was like um my tatai um my dad he was just like he went to the um open house and he saw like the cafeteria which was super fancy and is like okay you can go to this school <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. I love that it was the
1: cafeteria that did it's it. It's a good cafeteria. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite part. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, like um it yeah, they let me I went for like three years and a and semester, and then I went straight into work right after. Um I worked at a studio in the Philippines for about almost four years, like three years, eight months. And uh the most famous thing I animated on was My Little Pony. And yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. No shit. I had no idea. It, yeah, it was like, it, I, I can't say, like, it was fun in some ways, but in general, like, animation is, like, a very hard, like, industry. Um yeah. And yeah, the only reason I kind of continued it into when I arrived in Canada, so I went I went to Toronto, I took a program, then I got, like, a work permit and everything, and then um, the only reason I went back into it in Canada is because um, even though it's still pretty tough, um, the pay got, like... 13, like like 13 times the amount I was paid in the Philippines so I was like you know I can do this yeah. I can probably do this <laughs> oh, I can
0: I can probably live off of this money So yeah I
1: just I, I've been in that for a while The comics were stuff that I did for myself because eventually animation just became work work. Um, And that's generally what happens (laughs) (laughs) when you're in a creative field. It's like it's not really like people are like, oh, that sounds so fun. That sounds so creative. And I'm like, yeah, for someone else, I'm just doing the work work. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, comics were what I did then. And then, um, yeah, like that's basically I still do them now. I'm going to TCAF actually soon, which is a Toronto Comics and Arts Festival so I'm very excited about that, and yeah, like I, I've always loved telling stories. That's basically been my driving force. Like whether it be through comics or through any other medium, I've written some stuff. I've written some sh- a lot of short stories. Um, one book um, that I'm very like eh, it's, it's it's okay, it's fine, it's it's as of its time, and <laughs> yeah. So I've always enjoyed like drawing and writing, and part that's my job, but it's also just what I love to do.
0: Would you say that, um, would you say that the changes in like how you adapted to like animation um or how you um progressed through your animation career and the changes that happened in like storytelling techniques or trends or or anything uh influenced
1: what you're doing in audio with Hainai? I think it did. Um, I actually think that because the thing you don't generally here but is like kind of a truth in a bunch of like animation like among animators and a bunch of like visual artists is that when animators are working um they tend to consume podcasts because the brain is like you know visually like um very engaged so like but many animators need an additional like thing of engagement so like podcasts are the perfect thing podcasts or Live plays of DD. Like, those are the things that I'm noticing, like, with myself and my peers. And yeah, that's why, like, that's why we love podcasts in the animation space. You know, it's like a very, you know, interesting thing, phenomenon. I had wondered. (laughs) That's a big one. And yeah, and also, obviously, just like, it's another, like, it's kind of the other form of, like, the indie comic. Like, the indie comic is so ubiquitous. It's like, people like really telling what stories they want to the most and like podcasts are similar like it's the way like people can get in and like tell the story that they want to tell in a way that's very accessible to a lot of people a lot of creators and I do think that especially with the way I do podcasting um uh the audio is kind of like It's not secondary, but it is more like I always think about it in my head. I have a very like visual way of like thinking and I try to do the best I can to like translate that into audio, kind of like um, make sure that people can kind of understand what I'm seeing in my head. And so a lot of my way of doing podcasting is very like um, visually oriented, which has led to a lot of people telling me like, oh, a lot of podcasts are perfect as a podcast medium, but your podcast feels like it could be a, a TV show or like a something like that. And I'm like, I kind of understand that because I do like see it as a TV show in my head. And I am basically just like breaking it down to something that can be understood in an audio medium. And like, and I have to, you know, like make sure that it's convincing more than anything because... There are, like, certain aspects of the audio medium where people try to over-explain things. Whereas for me, it's like, you you don't have to really over-explain things. You just have to make sure that things are clear. Like, you don't have to, you know, um, insist upon certain details if those details don't really matter to the overall, like, picture. Unless the details matter, you don't have to, like, go really into it. So I, I do like to do that. I like to have that sort of thing where i have a balance between like what i'm seeing in my head and what i'm like writing on the page and acting out so yeah i'm sure it like it all it all comes together it's all like really it's all connected
0: (laughs) you co-create hainai with your um with your collaborator reg Mm heli What does your podcast collaboration look like? Because we've seen a lot of like collaboration teams on Radio Drama Revival and they all work very differently and people are usually interested in seeing that
1: process. So our collaboration's interesting just because um, Reg Haley is my best friend um, of, gosh, I don't know how many years now, like 15 years, I think. Our, our friendship as a teenager, I think is what we described it as. And yeah, like she's been my best friend for years and the collaboration kind of came out of When during the pandemic, um, both me and Reg got into the same podcast and we would listen to it together on Zoom or like on Discord. We would like take a day, listen to an episode together and kind of just hang a chat about it. And once I started like pitching a lot of ideas to her... She would be the one not only to like bounce ideas off of, but then she'd be like, you know, this one's a little too much. And it's like, you know, you're right. This is too much. Or she asked a clarifying question is like, um, like, OK, but what is this? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> so it's been like I, I like to like info dump on her on all of my ideas and then she will like kind of take them and kind of like clean them up. Just be like a little too much over here, a little too much over there. And then, yeah. And once that's like, once that whole process is done, we're like, okay, we have like agreed on this cut down version or like this like more like clarified version. Um, And then we just kind of go from there. And Reg also handles a lot of the um, other aspects of Hainai, like um, making sure that she does the graphics for every episode and all that. And, yeah, basically, like, Reg has been a wonderful collaborator, like, in various things that cannot be put down on one page. So we just put her as co-creator. And, um, yeah, this podcast definitely wouldn't exist without her. Um, Although... Our backgrounds are very different like she is now like I- I- a medical student so like that's a whole other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like thing but yeah she loves this podcast as much as I do she really like we ha- we all we have like a lot of a lot in common in terms of our inspirations so um, yeah, it's been like wonderful to collab with her, even though we're both like busy at various times, it still works out. So Hai was specifically written for the
0: magical person of color who is often relegated to being a background trope to a white protagonist um, who now gets to be their own protagonist with a like BIPOC surrounding cast and people they trust to support them, mm-hmm. which is also often not the case. Um, talk to me about your experiences with this trope in animation and comics and what the process of reclaiming it for Hainai looked like
1: oh interesting um I think animation is has a lot of people who are like you know um doing a lot of like very visionary things I'm thinking of like things like Owl House and I'm thinking of Amphibia and all that and like BIPOC characters being able to kind of like center stage come center stage a little bit and um I always found it really funny in like horror media, like in, I guess, film and like stuff like that, where you'd have this like cast of um, white characters who are going through this. And then they go to this person who's like this, this non-white person who knows what's going on. And for some reason, that non-white person doesn't stick around. Like they don't sometimes because like, whoa they they died because like this happened. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Cool. But sometimes just like, they just don't, stick around and it's like it's almost like you have um, like a fire extinguisher for a fire and then they just like here's the fire extinguisher anyway let's uh, let's you know go go into this fire (laughs) and figure it out like "Uh, okay (laughs) someone bring a bucket of water I guess Yeah, (laughs) they're not even they're just like oh here's the fire extinguisher and then they're like anyway how do we deal with this fire (laughs) (laughs)
0: like, um, like they literally just
1: you literally just Really? Yeah, it's just like they're right there, you know. It's like it's right there. It, it's it's very funny to me, and they're there to help. And then they just like it's mo- it's either they just don't come up again or. They give instructions and then the peep the main character is just straight up like don't listen and they're like, What? <laughs> it's like she just yep. told you what to do. Like, why what are you doing? So yep. I wanted to incorporate that. So kind of going back to high and high a little bit, um, I kind of want to incorporate that because I like the idea of and especially just in general horror, like in the barring like any of those like um like any of those like so- social like considerations, um, just in general horror, it's best if the person does all the smart things, and still um, like sees misfortune. Um, and it's kind of like that's the best kind of horror. It's like they do everything they can, and there's still like a lot of like real threat. And whether you like a sad and en- a bad ending or a good ending, it's always most satisfying when the protagonist does everything right. And there's still, like, something that could go wrong. And kind of, like, I wanted to incorporate that in Heidi because um, Mary spends a lot of, like, her time kind of just giving instructions. and um, She really,
0: she do be doing yeah, that. She's, like, you know, she
1: <laughs> kind of just knows what to do for the most part. And the fun part about her is that despite, you know, kind of fulfilling that, that role of, like, knowing what's going on, because she's also the youngest in the entire cast, when she doesn't know what's going on, she actually has, like, a little bit of a crisis when she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> And like, I think that like gives her a lot of like really interesting character. Like, she seems very responsible and very like knowing about a lot of things, but she is like she does still need help in a lot of other cases, which is why she has like a, such a nice team around her.
0: So you discussed in an interview with Doitano on the Comics Cube about how you were surprised people found your work terrifying, and you thought you were just leaning into the creepiness. Do you have any thoughts about the disconnect there and why it might have happened?
1: Um, You know, good question, because I do think it was, um, I think it's like, I guess it comes down to effectiveness because we are i've realized we're kind of surprisingly effective at certain things like i can just make a sound and people are like like don't do that and I'm like what it's just my mouth doing this sound and i kind of just like do the sound and everyone's like stop um <laughs> and i do think it does come down to I, I am creeped out by many things like i'm not i'm a scaredy cat i can't play horror games except like I love, really I love like really baby ones <laughs> um I I I get like such a like my heart starts like beating fast and um why is
0: everyone in horror like this?
1: <laughs> and that's interesting. I think that like uh, I think I think I kind of know why and it's it's very fun because um I yeah, I I was like a scaredy cat when I was a child. Um I I can watch more horror movies now, but back then I was like I could not watch a single horror movie or else like have nightmares for weeks and I like watching people play horror games but I can't play horror games myself and yeah it's like (laughs) I think it's because um and I think many people in horror are like this it's that you know like kind of you're not scared of what you like know and people write what they know And nothing about this is, like, unusual to me. I'm like, okay, here's the rotting thing. I know how it's supposed to sound. Here's what I'm going to do. And I know, like, what the source of the sound is, too. So I find it, like, you know, in my opinion, it's, like, kind of funny. Like, the rotting thing specifically, people were very scared of that sound. And that sound is, like, I don't know. I think it was, like, a stomach rumbling, and I just slowed it down, like, a lot. Like, some, some very genius man had done this, like, free library of, like, sound effects, and one of them was just putting a, st- a microphone up to his stomach as it was, as it was like, rumbling. And I was like, this is great. And I just started, like, putting it through a bunch of um, filters and being like, okay, this is my monster. <laughs> so, like, that kind of, like, you know, wipes, like, this- the horror off of it, you know? It- it's very fun to kind of just... Um, the process makes it like less scary or kind of just listen to it over and over. And you're like, okay, I need to make this scary. So you're working from a point of not scary and you're trying to make it creepy. And you're like, okay, I think this is creepy enough, but people just kind of get into it. Like they are already in this mindset of like what the horror is. So like the sounds kind of like take them off guard and it like scares them. And I kind of find that really fun. Like I've definitely like, if I knew how, P.T. was made like Silent Hill P.T. I'm sure I wouldn't be scared of like the lady who's floating around, but I don't. And therefore, (laughs) every time I see her, I'm like, no, no, no. (laughs) And I, I also like I do think that even if something's not necessarily scary, when you're in the zone, when you're like when you are invested in something, it doesn't matter if it's scary or not, because you know that it's the threat of death or failure or like see you know like you don't you've kind of like psyched yourself up you have put yourself in the position of being scared and so yeah like I think that's like what it is um everyone in horror is like creeped out by everyone else and it's kind of just very funny to see like oh that's so scary like but that's so scary but uh. amazing mm-hmm. um. oh I just want to add like there's one scene in one of our episodes where it's, I don't know if you've heard the Tick Tick episode, but that one's like a special episode. And like, it does a sound and people think that sounds scary. Um, but the sound is just something like I do with my mouth. So it's kind of sound like. And I just do that like behind my teeth. And I I just like really enjoy that because people are like, oh, it's so creepy. It's like, and I'm just like, I'm just like, you know, doing a tongue thing like. It's not that <laughs> It's not, it's not. that creepy. It's not that creepy. You're talking about. Yeah. It's fun.
0: I I get ASMR from sounds like that. Nice. So like you started making making the sounds and like I got like warm chills like all <laughs> up my neck. Um,
1: uh, I, I like. Know.
0: and that's like a good thing for me. So.
1: <laughs> that's wonderful. I think some people yeah, were like creeped out by the concept too, and I'm like I can't take credit for no, that that's concept. Fair. That's very much a Filipino like um, folklore thing, and I love it.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Actually, speaking of Filipino folklore, mm-hmm. Mari is part of a Babylon family um, and learned what she knows from her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to hear more about the, the Babylon in the Philippines, especially for anyone who may still be picturing them as like the standard priestess trope or um, like just thinking of them as like, like shamans from like a completely
1: different culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I I can say that it's di- it's different wherever you are, um, but I think like a lot of people see them a certain way, and honestly, it's not quite that. It's not quite that. <laughs> it's um. I actually can't say like what their day jobs are, if any, because I I haven't like been in close contact with Babaylan that much. But um, my mom, which is really funny, because like you know I, I call this hi Nai and it's hi mom and um she's kind of the inspiration for a lot of it because when i was growing up and i didn't realize they didn't like clock this as odd until like much later when i was growing up um whenever like something strange would happen she would have somebody she'd call an albulario which is a medicine man and like she just called an albulario in, and i'm like okay cool interesting and then she would call like um she has something called a helot which is like at first it was just like um like an independent massage therapist, um, without any of the, you know, I guess medical degrees or anything. And I'm like, okay, cool. Then I found out later, like, helot is a form of like um old medicine in the Philippines. And the helot she's calling in are like kind of similar to the Babaylan and the and the albulario, except they do like body like healing. So it's specific to them. And um, so I was like, OK, so my mom actually has like a lot of these like connections <laughs> and I just didn't realize it. And I I talked to Reg about this and even she was like, oh, my, my mom, too. And they kind of come from the same area. They're like kind of more southern, like they're more in Bis- Visayas, which is like a s- more southern region of the Philippines, but not fully south. And there are a lot of people who are very active and not just like... Not, like, in different areas. And for the most part, like, they're not going to look that different. Like, the guy who... The albolario I met when I was really young, he just... I remember him, he had, like, a big beard. But other than that, he was, like, wearing a really loose shirt. And he was wearing, like, basketball shorts and, like, slippers. (laughs) And he was just doing his thing. And I'm like, I feel like the big beard even was, like, just his thing. Like, it's not something you see for everyone. (laughs) I think it's probably part of his, like, whole thing. But, yeah, it's, like um it's not really a dead art it, uh, it's it's you know it's very preserved but not in, in any official capacity so if you just it's not so much that oh um here are the um, most famous babaylan or like most famous shamans or most famous like albulari or anything like here it's more like do you know somebody and they'll be like i know like my my, my cousin knows somebody and you kind of just get get in contact with them through family members or like even like people who work at your house like um, like a maid or a driver you're like do you know somebody and they'll be like oh yeah i know somebody and it's kind of just a very communal thing where you just get in contact with them if you have a problem that feels very supernatural (laughs) and it's um for me obviously like i I grew up in the city and i'm obviously like here in canada so i am not like an expert on these things and people have done way more research and done way more like um informational like stuff than i have um mine is like partially um i mean obviously it's very fictional but (laughs) at the same time um it also has like a grain of like truth in terms of all of the practices I have listed for Mary, or almost all of them are based on real practices, whether they are old and they don't do that anymore, or they're like newer. Okay. Um, I believe that um, there's this thing called a lingling Ling O, which Mary wears, which I also wear. And this one they said to me, like when I was asking about it, like, because I bought it, like, from people who were buying it straight from the mountains like people who are like carving it in the mountains indigenous like groups and um they told me like oh you know like if it was like genuine they would have like dipped it in blood and like did some this and that and i'm like oh that's interesting and they still do that today so there's a lot of like practices that i got just from you know research just from like hearing about it or people who have done more research than i have but for the most part, it's like, it's still a living thing. And I don't know that there are people who live in like cities who have that job and then have no other job. I, I don't 100% know, or maybe it's case to case basis. Mari's um, mom, her nanay, she did that, but she, but I imagine she had other jobs, you know? <laughs> like, it's like kind of her side gig. And her, her nanai, um, which is Mari's Lola, also did that like um and over time like Maddie herself like she she did the thing but also she is a sound editor that's her job <laughs> like that's her day job Love that. and <laughs> like it kind of like lends itself to I do believe they had like other parts of their life but whenever they're called in they're like okay I'm gonna like go here and do this thing and then come back and just do my day job and continue on. And that's kind of like the framing I have for Maddie and her family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really
0: interesting i just always get so annoyed when people are like nobody does that anymore i'm just kind of like
1: everyone you, like so many people what? do that still <laughs> yeah it's, i
0: know It's just kind of like listen you didn't kill
1: all of them yeah exactly thank god <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's like and even in that like a lot of them you know there's a little bit of christianization there but it's still like yeah people still like go up there um you can find all of their all of these people like um selling pendants in front of a church. <laughs> like so, that's literally where they are. Like they're selling um, all of these herbal remedies and or like lucky pendants, anting anting and agimat, which are like essentially like magical objects that imbue power into you. And they're all like you can buy them in front of like one of the oldest churches in Manila. <laughs> like oh yeah, Amazing. like I need some magic, um, some very not Catholic magic in front of the Catholic church. Yeah. That's kind of just how it went. That how it goes still. Yeah, until that sounds now. familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Puerto Rico. That sounds familiar. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Very much like a similar <laughs> yeah. vibe. It's very familiar vibe. Mm-hmm. They didn't wipe out like they didn't wipe out the yeah. beliefs. They kind of just integrated them.
0: Uh, one of the sources of Hainai's horror is, as you mentioned, Filipino folklore and and this familial storytelling, which is baked into the whole concept of the show where Muddy tells her mother her adventures. This is a really close, beautiful relationship, both with stories and with family can you tell us a little about family dynamics in the philippines and whether you've encountered anything
1: radically different in canada um i guess like in terms of filipino family family dynamics um, i don't think i've like met that many i guess canadian families let's just say that like because i obviously i came here for school then work so there's no like situation where i would have been up close and personal with a whole family or anything Kind of um, uh, just like different people, um, different individuals. Um, But I do get like a sense of like what Canadian families look like just in terms of, you know, media, um, just the general North American vibe and also just um, like just what people tell me, like how they grew up and everything. And in the Philippines, like in a lot of like immigrant stories, the vibe is very different. Um, although I will say like of the families, my family is fairly liberal in term in, in that like in that structure. Although I guess we we weren't always. So that's interesting. Like my parents were extremely strict, extremely traditional, like way back when I was a kid and as we got older they became a lot more like loose a lot more liberal a lot more like chill in the philippines um it's very similar like the family tends to be very um uh family first is can be a toxic thing like not always but in general like the rely, relying on family and families are very big too like their, commu- their entire communities in the philippines <laughs> so these are all like familiar thoughts and for Maddie and her like family dynamic it's kind of unusual because um i have positioned her as a character who doesn't have any siblings which is is kind of unusual honestly um her a- father actually he passed away like kind of halfway through her life so she only has her nanae but she does have like a lot of cousins so there's that um but yeah like she has a slightly unusual one but i still did like give her some interesting like dynamics with her mother that you kind of see as as time progresses, like clearly, you know, from the beginning that she loves her Nana very much and she likes to tell her a lot of things. But as we go on, like, I think I don't know if some people will react to this, but there are moments where Maddie kind of like tells a story and she kind of talks about how her mother hits her um, and her like her mother is like very um, strict and, her you know, like things like that. And she says it in passing because it's, it, you know, like growing up in the Philippines, it was very common to get like um, essentially like smacked. <laughs> like um, it was very common to get like um, something, the cinturon or the belt. And we also get the chinelas or the, or, the, or the yeah chancla, the, 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 the slipper. Chancla. Yeah, chancla. Yeah. That's the one in PR. Exactly. Yep. So like growing up, like that was kind of normalized for her. And it's just, yeah, like that's what, how she would discipline her. And I never try to make it seem like she does it like um, unreasonably in every like scene that it happens. It's kind of like because Maddie does a stupid thing or she puts herself in danger, which is generally like the like how I kind of (laughs) remember. I kind of remember growing up. But um, it is like, I think, complicated. I think it might be a little more complicated for a lot of people to kind of reason with because this is just cultural as well. And it isn't, like, nowadays, not so much. But when I was growing up, it was just whatever. It was normal. So I put that into the story as well. I don't know. People haven't, like, commented on it. I don't know how they receive it. But I do think that on a global scale, I think a lot of people from our global audience kind of understands it. Like, it is very much like, um, it's, it's not something to kind of be like, oh, my God, like, what the hell? It's more like, this is part of the relationship and kind of like contributes to how, like, not necessarily like it, it's kind of fraught in some ways, but at the same time, you can still see Maddie kind of just talking to her mom all the time. So it's like an interesting dynamic of why is why is Nana the most important, like, kind of low key the most important character in this in this podcast and yeah. like all that. So it's it's interesting and it's also like when you kind of like look into it from a filipino perspective there are certain things that people kind of allow and mm-hmm. because there are quote unquote more important things to story about and yeah like that's that's a complex like kind of topic that we want to like let is difficult to kind of go into but it is like very genuine mm-hmm. to kind of portray and i think we try yeah, to do that absolutely. as well um in in hainai mm-hmm. yeah i think
0: like I think that that's a good choice because i think ignoring those complexities mm-hmm. does a disservice right yeah to like the like realities that you are trying to portray here
1: exactly exactly um, when i say like when i especially, say especially yeah. when i say her nana hits her it kind of sounds like I'm like she punches her no she's like she's sl- she slaps her um, which is like it's still hitting, but you know, like I don't mean to say like oh she like she like punched her out or no that's not what happened, but she does <laughs> she does slap her like in her memories and everything. So that's something like just to note because it does happen. Like yeah, it, yeah uh, I grew up with it. Mm-hmm. It was kind of just like it is. It is absolutely a form of abuse, but it's also absolutely like it kind of like the the culture, the nature of like the whole situation it was a very different like mindset very different time and it's not um not really something that can be kind of simplified because just because of different like cultures so it's a whole other thing yeah. but yeah like that's kind of just like Absolutely. my thought on it like i portrayed it yeah. but not necessarily because i think nana is a bad person i just think like right. it's it's very important to have that kind of because nana in like she influenced mary so much and she um and they were put in very dangerous situations like all the time. So everything that I did was like kind of to protect Maddie in that way. And it kind of mm-hmm. becomes clearer and clearer as time goes on why that's the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Hello my lovely audience. This is a quick break in our programming to highlight our presenting sponsor, Evo Terra's The End newsletter. The End is a fiction audio newsletter that highlights completed series and seasons ready for you to enjoy at your own pace and without having to wait for more episodes. Evo has been in the podcast industry for 18 years and has excellent judgment for both independent and non-independent audio. Check out The End at theend.fyi and subscribe now to get your fiction podcast itch scratched with completed stories. And now, back to our show. Well, let's talk about the real monsters, which are the colonizers and the white people. (laughs) Um. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So... uh, uh, colonizers and white people are often the monsters in fiction written by people of color and (laughs) colonized folks Uh, can't imagine why (laughs) Um, something that white folks love to claim is reverse racism, (laughs) which, which doesn't exist (laughs) uh, for for anyone listening (laughs) who is not aware of that fact. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) What is crucial about putting them in this antagonist role? And no, you know what? That's it. That's crucial about it. What's why is it so important?
1: Um, interestingly, um, I think like it in Hainai, I think a lot of people might be turned off by the idea that um like the the enemies, the the antagonists are like almost like they're all white, although even if their their group was not like necessarily all white. But that's kind of just like it's all I didn't like intend for it to just be, oh the white people are evil because white people are evil. No, not really. No, that's not really the intention. The intention was that the time in which they lived of course like this group of rich magicians would be white like (laughs) like i mean come on like whenever people are like why is there like a black person in this victorian like victorian thingy i'm like because history but also um like now i'm like oh here's like a group of white people from like the edwardian era um and they're all like bad guys it's like why and i'm like I guess you wanted history, right? Like, this is... Yeah. If you want an all-white history, hate, here you go. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I mean, like, the interesting thing, we do, like, play with this one other character, and she is the only character in, I, I would say, like, the, the Hainai podcast, and in, like... She's the only character in the group, which we call the Ordo, which we'll go into later, but, like, the Ordo was, like, an old group um, of essentially, like, very magician very much like inspired by a lot of like those um, occult groups like of the like 20s 30s 40s that kind of thing Um, and they were and like fraternities and things like that and they're kind of like the main antagonists of Hainai um, and like their magic and their like um, plans and everything and I actually really enjoy these characters I do think that some of them are like really intriguing and I do like to humanize them in a lot of ways um, but one of the members is the only member that they have that is black, and she's also a woman. And she was like kind of, she was based slightly on like real um, members, like real people that I had researched, which is that there was this guy in um, Canada. I can't remember his name right now, but he was like, a millionaire through his his like through um hotel chains, like he had his like own hotel chains back in the twenties and 30s like like way late late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds and he was black. and so his family was like one of the most like nouveau rich like um people of that era. and I kind of like had this character who is like she is rich. And so she, like, enters this, like, group because she's actually, like, very good at, like, she's very adept at, like, the research and the magic. And we kind of play with that as well. Like, what does that look like? Like, who accepts her? Who doesn't? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the way race and, like, ethnicity in Hainai is presented is um, very much, like, an exploration. Not so much as, like, oh, I don't want to, like, oversimplify anything. Um, a lot of it I I like to joke. Like I like to over like oversimplify it as a joke, like, oh look at all these like white, white enemies and like these like really good non-white people. But that's like kind of just a joke, not to um shorten like what the concept actually is, which is that um these characters are not necessarily bad because they're white. They're bad because they're rich. No, um, no, it's <laughs> 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 that's the real. That's no the notes. real answer. The like what their evil is not is not in their color of their skin. It's the fact that they have money. No. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no notes <laughs> um, but yeah like capitalism is the real capitalism enemy everybody. is the real enemy and that's like the whole point of high night no um i wanted to play with like these <laughs> concepts of people who i don't know like they they like have a different mindset that i've observed it's like the mindset of rich people the mindset of very often white people who just like um don't understand, like, the consequences of certain actions, and I think, like, that's basically, like, the whole um, thesis of Hainai in terms of the the villain side, which is that a lot of them had very lofty ideals, and they're not even, like, not all of them were, like, selfish, is the thing. A lot of them were, like, we're gonna help people, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and so I tend to um, frame them, like, that's why the main enemy is called the benefactor, because like, he genuinely wanted to help people and like we kind of like d- dig into why he's like this now or like what 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 this is ha- what what is happening in high that he is like the biggest enemy like why is a guy called the benefactor literally the biggest bad guy and so we kind of like play into that kind of like play into kind of like play into white savior tropes like all different tropes in media um that i think are interesting but from a kind of horror perspective and Interestingly, like the way I did like the the main characters, I like to say like, oh, here's my BIPOC cast and here's like all this and that. But I just do that because marketing, like honestly, it's like here's like okay, like here's what you need to know in like five seconds. Like the cast is all BIPOC and queer. Um, the enemies are this and that, and like this is what's happening, it's in Toronto, da-da-da-da-da. Um, just so people who are interested in that kind of story can find it very easily. But the actual like content of the story is more interested in like the the different, like very human, like elements of what, like, of, of like hubris, of um, empathy, et cetera, et cetera. And the cast being like almost entirely non white, except for like Laura, who's like one character. Um, that was by accident. <laughs> like, was, like, I, I like, I love it when that happens. It was like on purpose <laughs> that like the main character is Filipina, because that's like, oh, I need her to be like this. A magical person who is not white who is still like the main character but everything else was kind of just like I had a group of friends and they're all not white and we were like can you help me voice this, this cast and they're like sure and we just started like designing characters that they could voice and that's it <laughs> know that's it just happenstance exactly but i wouldn't say complete happenstance um Mm -hmm. it kind of just fits into like the whole thing but it's not it wasn't like the intention from the get-go to be like oh we can only have non-white heroes and white villains like that that was not the intention at all it's just in the story also
0: white people love to tell us about how they have that one black friend so (laughs) you know It's just exactly exactly
1: the way the the way the ratio she's, works. She's I guess like the one white yeah like Laura is the the token white character and yeah. I and gotta I, have one of those. Mm-hmm. We love her. She's great. Anyway, yeah, she is great. Um,
0: so let's talk a little bit about the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, because recently the Philippines held an... Election that was stolen mm-hmm. by Marcos Jr, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, mm-hmm. who was a dictator who was removed from power about thirty years ago, mm-hmm. thirty plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Tell us in brief what happened um and if you find somewhere to to mention it or uh Talk about it. The impact of the filter of the Western media lens mm-hmm. on what was happening in the Philippines. Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, so recently, like there was an election and Marcus Jr. won the election, quote unquote. I mean... Um, despite like being um like ha- having like grounds for disqualification since the very beginning that the um COM-ELEC, which is the commission on elections ignored and then they um let him campaign even though again like more grounds for like um, being disqualified which were ignored um there was um you know proof of vote buying which was ignored it's, it's like it, the Kamelech kind of just let him do what he wanted and then he won. And I actually do think that if it was a legitimate election, um, he still would have won. But that would have been like, but there's a reason for that. And I don't think this was a legitimate election because six people were killed in election related violence and 1,800 machines were like broken on the day. And people could not cast their vote before the deadline that Kamelech would not like extend, even though it was because their machines were broken Um, there were supposed lock boxes that were not lock boxes. They were cardboard boxes, um, all that stuff, you know, people have like kind of talked about this over and over and it's kind of just like all very silly and very bad. Um, but I will say, like I said before, I do think that even if it was legitimate, which I don't think it was, it, he still would have won because he paid like for quite the complicated, um, uh, and very like sophisticated, um, uh, what do you call it, like, um, troll farms? Smear, s- smear campaign? Exactly, like, a very, very long oh, yeah, campaign farms. of okay. misinformation. Troll farms who have come forward essentially, like, people have ad- like, openly admitted to working for, like, troll farms by the hun- like, by the dozens, um, making hundreds of fake accounts just to pretend that he's, like, um, a good leader. Um, it was very, like, it, w- it was very much a, um, a coordinated misinformation campaign, um, erasing a lot of history, even though like all the historical like, you know, uh, sources, all the historians, all of the people who are like holding on to this information still have that information available. It is just that they were actively delivering misinformation to people. So um, it's been like and that's kind of like what their goal is now. It is like they want to continue delivering this misinformation to people um, many people believe that misinformation, but also many people who don't care, they just think that they will benefit from uh, another regime and uh, yeah. and essentially, just for people who don't know about Marcos like he's Ferdinand Marcos is in the um encyclopedia Britannica that'll give you like a good chunk of what he was he was an authoritarian he was a kleptocrat he stole he stole like a lot of money from the Philippines that his family has not like paid um even now even though he's gonna be president quote-unquote uh BBM like um who is Marcos Jr he still owes like he and his mom still owe like 300 million dollars for contempt of court yeah like plus like a a um uh some kind of like tax of like 18 billion, I believe it's like it's it's all stuff like people argue about the 18 billion, but nobody can argue about the 300 million dollars. It's all very silly. It's all very like, oh, I'm sorry. No, the 18 billion is the 203 million. He owes 200 billion t- in taxes. <laughs> it's it's a lot of But he owes billions of dollars. Uh, he owes billions of pesos, millions of dollars. Um, And people just like, I don't know, like, um, whenever you kind of present that to them, one of them they can argue against, the other one they can't argue against, they just don't care. And it's like, all right, okay, whatever, like, you think that Britannica, like, the Encyclopedia Britannica is fake news, uh, I don't know how to help you. You know, it's like, and it's it's a range Ah! of people. It's a range of people, (laughs) and it's crazy, but... You know, like, we still have hopes. We still have, like, our work cut out for us. Um, the people who are historians, who are, like, um, um, actual, like, like journalists, they are holding the line as best as they can. Um, we don't know what will happen, but we do know that, like, the Marcuses are, like, very much, they lie quite a bit. And um, at this point, the interesting thing is i i mean obviously i i cannot you know pretend that it's a good idea to kind of belittle him because but I don't believe that b b m is even like very intelligent I think he's being manipulated um but i cannot you That's know fair. i cannot safely say that because obviously it's i you know we cannot like pretend that he is just like a pawn because that would be b- diminishing his role in like essentially a regime. But I do think that the the mastermind here is Imelda Marcos, who is, by the way, a convicted criminal. She's just not in jail because she's old, and they think she's too old to go to jail. And I'm like, no, (laughs) send her to jail. She's got seven counts of... She's got seven convictions of something called graft in the Philippines. So it's like, send her to jail. She's been convicted since 2018. And literally, they're like, where's the conviction? And I'm like, it's right there. Like, the news is right there. Like, they want to pretend like they're kind of like blind to the fact that she's been convicted. They're both convicted criminals. It's like eh. But yeah, like it's at this point it's Very like fun. What can we do? Like people will not like to hear this. Like people in the Filipi- like Filipinos will not like to hear this cuz they really think they're right, but honestly, like it is so easy to see that they're both convicted criminals who owe like billions <laughs> of pesos. <laughs> And honestly, like, Uh, voting for a thief, like, I don't know, like, I really hope you guys, like, get your money stolen, because that would be, like, the best karma. Um, The only problem is the people who did not vote for him are also going to have to deal with it, so I'm like... Yep. Yeah. It's a lot of selfishness um, going around... But yeah, that's basically what it is. Yeah. His family stole a lot of money. Um, there was a lot of torture, a lot of death. There was a lot of like horrible things that were happening. His mother was just as much a dictator as his father. Um, he himself um, still owes a lot of money. Just because, um, He, I wouldn't say, is like the worst person in their family, but he's certainly very bad. Um, uh, and yeah, it's a whole thing. It's um, wow. And people will always be like, oh, if you speak out about it and you're not Filipino, they're like, you don't know shit. And I'm like... I know shit. <laughs> you don't know shit. <laughs> yeah. Literally. It's it's so it's so silly, but yeah, it, it's it's all very wow. much like they can't if they can't win an argument, they just say move on and I'm like, "No." <laughs> no. No, you can't move on from history. You can't move on from like literally from facts. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's basically what I have yeah, to Yeah, I say feel about like it. um mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot of um, a lot of our audience in the U.S. is gonna understand the vibe of a lot of this oh yeah for sure everybody
1: everybody looks at 2016 (laughs) Mm -hmm. absolutely and honestly it's like like, uh... (laughs) and I think like the biggest problem with like uh, western media covering it is not that they're covering the truth which I think is good like the fact that they're covering the truth is good I think that a lot of just random people truly believe that um it was kind of like um like the will of the people by the will of the people that this happened whereas like the actual truth is that a lot of people were just straight up lied to and maybe half those people don't care that they were lied to um but there are like quite a number of people who either were lied to and there are like people who are threatened like threatened with violence if they don't like um if they don't um do what it is that like the family of a dictator wants. So that's kind of like how it is. It's like um in the US, I believe like a lot of people like um dismiss the concerns of people in the South just because the South is like, you know, has a like a large majority of people who are like very pro like Republican some stuff like that. But it's kind of a similar thing in the Philippines where there are quite a few people who just cannot do otherwise. And there are quite a few people who are just terrible people <laughs> um, but they're like that's not the entire country and there are like 15 million plus plus people who voted for the opposition and what they're doing is that they're just going to form a, a um like a 15 million strong um uh like what do you call it like service um what do you call it non-government organization that focuses on bettering the lives of people in poverty and that's what's going to happen and that's why people are so hopeful even with everything that's been happening mm. but it's also been very fun just to see the people who are like very well respected historians and like um people in government and everything who, are, who have literally like cussed out Marcos just being like <laughs> it was very yeah. fun and i was it's very
0: very, very, very
1: savage very um
0: how would you say that the philippines past and now present with dictatorships and fascism
1: inform Filipino fiction. Ooh. Um, Filipino fiction is interesting because that is kind of like a very good lens by which we know what's going on in the current situation. And you can see that with the Duterte um, uh, administration, which I would also consider kind of a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, um, essentially, like you can see kind of this fight between two factions of media and one is the pro-Duterte media and the other one's the anti-Duterte media. And they're both fighting, essentially, <laughs> like, in film especially. I was seeing it like, here's a, here's a film for Netflix that is very anti-Duterte. And here's a film for Netflix that's very pro-Duterte. <laughs> and it's, they're both on Netflix. What are you going to do? Amazing. <laughs> it's so odd. But I do find that, obviously, like, grassroots groups and, like, you know, small, like, actual, like, communities of artists are very much anti um anti-fascism in general and the only ones who are kind of pro-fascism kind of are not welcome into those like into those communities and um even like it wasn't even that old like uh i don't know if you know uh, budget then he is the creator of Trese, which is a animated series oh. on on netflix
0: Yes, he, you talked to this is the thing that you started talking about in the in the comics cube exactly, interview exactly. that I mentioned earlier. Um, yes. Budget
1: is great and he created Tresse and interestingly enough, in Tresse, the main antagonist is like, you know, uh this this old that like this old warrior uh war god and stuff like that. But in the comics of Tresse, <laughs> the actual main antagonist of the whole like overarching story of Tresse is Imelda de Marcos. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean we well, can't say she's Imelda Marcos. Um she is the madam who looks like Imelda Marcos. She <laughs> left the Philippines and came back because her family was driven away. And she um pretends I can't to, imagine who this is. And she pretends to be very nice to people while also like essentially back, like making arrangements to like get a bunch of people killed, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's all <laughs>
0: I can't imagine who this could be. Clearly he just made it up from his brain. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's you know? no one who fits this description
1: at all. Exactly. And it <laughs> <there> is like <laughs> It's very funny. Yeah, like if shit, you look I this up, it. it's like the Madame Tresse. But that is the main antagonist of Tresse. and you'll be like, huh. Looks familiar. Mm. Hmm. Ooh, wonder mm-hmm. who this is. <laughs> and yeah, like, I mean, Budget, like, he he is very interest. He like he is very much not quiet about how much like how how much of Tresse like re- reflects like real life and um, having his main antagonist be basically Emel de Marcos is like a very big statement for him. And similarly, um, there is another comic by the artist of Tresse who is Cacho Baldissimo. So there is a comic called Twelve O One. Like 12, like time 1201. It's a martial law story by Russell Molina, who is another like really great creator of comics in the Philippines. And Caja Baldissimo, who is the artist of 13. And 1201 mm-hmm. is very much a martial law era comic. It talks about how um, the curfews meant a lot, meant essentially people could disappear and be killed. And a lot of people just lost their family, like lost people to just these curfews. And, um, it was very, you know, it was very, it's, it's a very triumphant comic. It is basically about a group of people who go out after curfew just to perform, but it is like, it kind of like taps into one of the biggest fears of the martial law, which is that if you go out after a certain time, you die. Like that was the fear. A lot of people were just getting kidnapped off the streets and like never seen again. And there that's part of like what martial law was. And we actually have a one of our episodes of Hainai covers that. Um there is so Hainai episode eleven, Nakara'an. Uh it covers Mary's ta- dad, her Mary's tatai, Um, and it's one of his like horror stories. Except that it is a mix of an urban legend that I've heard very commonly in the Philippines, but it's also a mix of the actual horror of this story is that Mari's dad grew up during, like, was, um, like a like kind of a little a young adult or teenager during the martial law era, and the concept of the story is that. He is afraid of like this strange ghostly apparition that's happening to him. But more importantly, he's afraid of being out past like curfew time um, during martial law. And that's like the actual fear that he has rather than this creepy thing that's happening to him. And and ghosts are not as terrifying as martial law. Exactly. Get in line. Exactly. Fiction is interesting because it kind of like reminds you in a way that's like, you know, that, that kind of entertains you in some way like you know like oh this is entertainment but then it kind of makes you curious about like what actually went on and then you see that the reality was much worse than what you are given in this horror story
0: yeah yeah (laughs) speaking of um realities that are worse than the fiction (laughs) um we're finally seeing a lot more immigrant narratives Mm -hmm. in published fiction including horror what in your experience as an immigrant in Canada,
1: informed Maddie's story? I would say that a lot of Maddie's story is... It's interesting. Like, I don't think I have experienced fully, like, what Toronto is quite yet. Like, I I do think it's more now than ever because now that people are, like, kind of coming out and we're seeing what Toronto is, and it's a city, and cities are fun in um, a a people-shouting-at-2am kind of way. Um, And I do think that um, my... Immigrant story with Maddie is more informed by the horrors of back home than it is about the horrors of Canada. I think actually, now that I think about it, the reason that Maddie is so capable and like she's so like oh you know I could not handle this da 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 this and that is because I don't find or I, at least I used to not find Canada that scary. <laughs> um, nowadays I'm like seeing a little more. I'm like okay I see where this horror is and I'm like grasping onto the real the horror like um potential of kenda but back then it was oh, very yeah. <laughs> much a, a very um benign place for me um coming in as an immigrant kind of just like you know doing my own thing and um maddie was like kind of came from a background that was very horrific and then going here and seeing like horrible things but being like eh, it's fine not that you know she's like it's, it's okay it's whatever <laughs> Um, and that's it's fine that's kind of like where her attitude comes from like obviously there's a whole plot and there's terrible things happening and you know all that but like her whole her whole thing is like uh, eh. you know like I, I think I know how to handle this and you know slowly as I get to know Canada more I think I'm making Mary a little more like you know worried but um, as, as it began it was very much like Canada feels very safe in a lot of ways um, in comparison to what she came from and what I came from. So, like, that was like the attitude that I had with Maddie, like being, yeah, she's like, she knows how to handle this because she's already gone through like so much crazy stuff that um she knows how to deal with. And I think the nice development of Hainai is that she is slowly not being able to deal with everything and kind of like having to rely on other people. Um, but, um, yeah, that's kind of, like, a nice way to, like, frame, like, the original, like, the beginning of Hainai, which is that, you know, Maddie's, like, seen it all, and <laughs> she's like, it's whatever. Um, she just does <laughs> not She she's very, um, uh, very, um, nonchalant about a lot of things, and I think what we're coming towards in our Act 2, which is, like, our Act 2 finale is coming up in Halloween, and what we're aiming for is to kind of shake Mari to her core. So that's like going to be a very exciting time for the story. <laughs> yeah.
0: Jesus. Mm-hmm. The real horror of Hainai. Yeah. The
1: horror of having to ask for help. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but also like, yeah, like that's kind of like Maddie's horror. She's like, she's, she's very much trying. She's so busy trying to help others that it's kind of just like, hmm, you know what will happen if she asks? to have some help from other people and stuff is no longer within her control hmm. how will that work mm. none of us are ready okay
0: that's mm-hmm. <laughs> true well thank you so much for coming on radio drama revival that's us thank you, uh, thank you for having when you use, me when you use the phrase like revival of radio drama I was just like, that's so, so funny exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah that was what I was thinking uh, as soon as I saw the name I was like oh you know uh, it is literally the revival of radio drama because all of my like really older is. relatives are like yeah this is literally the radio dramas I listened to as a kid uh, that's, that's it that's freaking awesome yeah. yeah thank you so much for coming on I really enjoyed talking with you I really enjoyed
0: talking with you thank you so much If you liked what you heard, you can support Hi Nye at www.patreon.com slash HainaiPod. Radio Drama Revival runs on rewatching old Comfort TV and day-old French fries. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe. Colonizers named This Place Beaverton, Oregon. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Decks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Diane Tapia. Our submissions editor is Rishi Garao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is ticker tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome.